0: So, we are back in the book of Nehemiah again, which has been awesome. And we are going to be looking at chapter 5 this evening. So, while I am giving you a little introduction, why don't you find that in your books? Bibles, books. Oof. And really, I wanted to look at the story of Nehemiah through the lens of leadership this evening. We've looked at different chapters, and they've, kind of, they've had different themes going on. But the title that I've given this evening is Leading Through Conflict. How to, how to lead when a community is at war against itself. Sounds quite challenging, and, and I think it really was for Nehemiah. How to rebuild a city... Jerusalem when you are unqualified and have to be completely dependent on God because that's the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. Now Dave Pike and Dave Kemp last evening looked at chapter four which is a glorious passage and just to give you a quick reminder some of you will be here for the first time to give you a quick reminder of last week that Nehemiah is experiencing opposition from outside so He's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Things are going quite well. He's managed to organize everybody. And then suddenly these two characters pop up. One of them called Sanballat and the other Tobiah. And they are really, really annoying. And Sanballat in the beginning of chapter... I'm getting that name all right, actually. Uh, In the beginning of chapter four, he just starts to mock Nehemiah. He's like, look at these walls, they're rubbish, they're going to fall down. In fact, not just these walls are rubbish, but you're rubbish. And everything that you've ever done is rubbish. And so chapter four starts like that. Just this guy just trying to be really annoying to Nehemiah. And then it continues and it moves from kind of mockery and threats to the threat of violence. And so the whole community who are rebuilding at this point suddenly have to take up arms. And it gives this picture of how them having a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That's how they're rebuilding the wall because the threat is so great that they're going to come and attack in the weak places of the wall that they're, they're building with one hand and a sword with the other. And so we come uh, to... verse 20 and it talks about this moment where there's a trumpet sound and whenever um, they were in deep trouble the trumpet would sound and people would rally round and it just says this whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet join us there our God will fight for us. So Nehemiah's had a pretty torrid time under threat probably feeling pretty stressed out by this point and at which point we turn the page into chapter 5 because at the end of chapter 4 it feels like there's a victory. But then we hit chapter 5. And Nehemiah has his hands full again. And the opposition now, guess where it comes from? Not from outside, but from within. It must have been such a depressing moment for Nehemiah. He's seen off this attack, and then suddenly he realises, oh no, the people within our community are at war. This has just got worse. Warren Wearsby said of these verses, When the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he then begins to attack from within. And one of his favourite weapons is selfishness. So true, isn't it? If he can get us thinking only about ourselves and what we want, then he will win the victory before we realise that he's even at work. Selfishness selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so I can be happy and taking advantage of them just so I can have my own way. It is not only wanting my own way, but expecting everybody else to want my way too. If God's people start fighting with one another, then we lose. Then we begin to lose. It's the same in the church. Have this drum, unity, unity, unity. And when we're talking about unity, we're not talking about uniformity. We're not talking about, do you know what, everybody has to be like each other. We've all got to be clones of one another. No, absolutely not. We want to be as diverse as possible. But we want to be unified around the one vision, around the one vision of Jesus. He's the thing that keeps a very different group of people together. What the devil could not accomplish from the outside, he can accomplish from within. So what does this mean? Well, it means as a community that we have to be on our guard. So a tiny bit of background before I dive in. The rebuilding of the wall is well underway, and the men have left their fields to come and build and protect the wall. And you have to remember that this was an agrarian society, so 445 BC, that this was how they lived. You know, out in the fields, they grew their own uh, food and food for those around them. And so when the men had to go in to build the walls, what happened? Well, the wives, the the ladies and the children were left behind. So suddenly, they're in charge. They're in charge, they're doing all of the the work that would normally be done by the guys at this point. So you've got that going on, which is a pretty major thing. You combine this with a famine at the same time, and you've got a pretty major thing going on. What happens during famine? Food is scarce, and the prices go, they skyrocket, don't they? Suddenly, everything becomes incredibly expensive. So what would have been quite cheap? Suddenly, you're paying loads for it. What, what does that lead to? Well, generally, it leads to poverty. It leads to the poor not being able to afford to eat anymore. So what was happening was, At this moment, some of the richer Israelites, some of the people who had a bit of cash at this point, saw this as an opportunity to become even richer by taking advantage of their poorer brothers and sisters. When you have God's people taking advantage of one another and offending one another, then there's going to be no unity. So what the opposition could not do from outside, the people of God fantastically managed to do to themselves the wall comes to a stop. Suddenly they stop building because there's disunity in the people of God. God's people are taking it to one another. So Nehemiah's got his hands full. And this is one of those moments when leadership absolutely sucks. It's just like, oh, I don't want to lead anymore. The community is fighting. It threatens to just derail everything. This beautiful vision that Nehemiah's moved to make happen. He's moved all the way across the country. He managed to get all the building blocks in order to be able to do it. The wood and everything that needs to rebuild the wall. He manages to see off the invaders. Brilliant. Gets to this point. Surely we can finish it off. No infighting. So this is a moment in his leadership. This is a crucial moment in his leadership. It's a big moment. And you, could, do you know what? We can parallel this with the church today so easily, can't we? Unity is so attractive. Why would anybody join a church community that's infighting? When you see infighting, whenever you go into an environment, it could be in your workplace or in, in your halls, where sometimes you go, into a, you go into an environment and you're like, these people really don't get on. Why would you want to be a part of that? You don't, do you? It's, it's slightly repulsive. So what I want to do today is I literally, we're going to go old school exegesis. So if you've got your Bible, get it out right now. If you've got your phone, this, this is really helpful sometimes just to go through bit by bit by bit by bit, because the passage is so rich, and I don't want us to miss what's going on. It can be slightly confusing in places, so I just want to go through and be like, this is exactly what's happening. And I hope that at the end of it, you realize how inspiring Nehemiah is as a leader, how he takes this awful situation and he manages to turn it around and in in at the same time give glory to God so we're going to start chapter 5 verse 1 says this now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews the men and women rise up together and I can imagine the wives saying do you know what enough is enough we're not going to go any further than this this cannot continue to happen Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. This really just shows how desperate the situation has become, that there are a whole load of people that are beginning to starve. Something has got to change just for them to stay alive. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And as we'll see in a minute, the people who could help we're charging them interest. Interestingly, it was forbidden according to Mosaic law to lend your brothers food money or anything at any kind of interest if they were starving. So if people are really under the cosh, you don't charge them interest. But the interesting thing is that's so often how our society works as well, isn't it? Do you know what? It's the poor of the poor that so often get exploited. I don't know, I don't know how you feel about payday loan companies, But I just loathe them with everything in me. You know, this idea that somebody gets to their payday, they're struggling, and then somebody goes, I'm going to charge you 2,000% interest. It's a similar situation. The poor are exploited, it's so wrong. And this is exactly what's happening here. Still others were saying, verse 4, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So the Persian kings enacted a tax on people's property. And in order to pay the tax, they had to borrow money. And again, what's happening is coming out of interest. So interest, interest everywhere. This cycle of poverty, we see it all the time, don't we? That people just can't get out. Suddenly they're struggling. Oh, do you know what? I'll get a bit of extra cash in order to do it then slapped with this massive interest, and then suddenly they have to borrow and borrow and borrow. And before they know it, they're in an awful situation. Verse five, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. It's got to such an awful situation that what they have to do is that they have to sell themselves into slavery. There is no other option. Can you imagine how terrible it must have been to go, I'm going to sell my daughter or my son into slavery or myself into slavery. I cannot pay any other way. I'm going to become your slave. It's the only way. But if you've got a choice of famine or selling yourself into slavery, you'd probably sell yourself into slavery. You're like, there's no other. There's just no way out. Why? Because of injustice. Systemic oppression. Systemic injustice. So this is the situation. That they find themselves in. And so it makes sense when we get to verse 6. This is Nehemiah speaking. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Probably an understatement. I think in life we have to pay very, very close attention to the things that make us angry. Because these are the things that we deeply care about. A lot of us get angry for loads of different reasons in life. It could be that our goals are blocked or we didn't get a job that we thought that we should get. Or even some of you just get mega road rage when you drive. Literally, you hate everybody on the road. And it's always their fault. Isn't that interesting? This is a different kind of anger that we're talking about right here. What is Nehemiah angry at? Oppression and injustice. It's that moment where it rises up within you. And it's like, this system is corrupt. This is not all right. How can this be happening? When I heard their outcry and their pain, what did he do? And this is so important, verse 7. I pondered them in my mind. Another way, or I took counsel with myself. Or I thought carefully. Not only did he think carefully, but he controlled his emotions. So often, when we're angry, what happens is we respond in that moment. I don't know about, okay, just think back to this week. Have you been angry this week? Okay, none of you are honest. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. Some of you are ang- angry on the way here. But... Um, When we become angry, we can become absolutely blinded by rage. In that moment, the text or email that we send in that moment can be incredibly dangerous. You are so annoying. I can't believe you've done this. What did... Ever done that? Generally regret it? Yes. What... I love the fact that Nehemiah just stopped. And he pondered and he took the time to go, do you know what, I'm livid. This is awful. What am I going to do? This is the moment where we seek, just take a moment to seek God's face. It's like, Lord, where's this anger coming from? Is this anger coming just from kind of my stuff or is this actually something deeper going on here? Therefore, we have to always pay attention to anger. Anger is really, really important. And it's really hard to do because it takes wisdom and self-control, And then what does Nehemiah do? So he ponders, and then he brings the facts. And he says, and then accused the nobles and officials. I brought charges against the nobles and officials. Nobles represent the rich, and officials represent those in authority. It takes a lot of courage to confront the rich and powerful, to take them on. And it goes on, I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. What's going on in this little bit here? And this is really, really important that we get hold of this. Again, going back a bit, the Persian king has allowed Nehemiah to travel here to rebuild the city. He's also given Nehemiah the title and position of the governor of Judea. That's how Nehemiah manages to get things done. So not only has he been blessed with materials, but our taxis have said, no, you're going to be the governor of this place. I'm going to give you positional authority to get things done. So when Nehemiah arrived in the city, you can imagine that people were pretty suspicious of him. They were probably sitting there thinking, What's this? how's this guy going to lead? He's going to put the taxes up on us again. He's going to take more money from us. Nehemiah doesn't do that at all. He settles into the city. He establishes a place to live. And then night after night, he'd go out, survey the walls, look at what's going on. And then as they begin to do their work, as they begin to rebuild the city, Nehemiah begins to understand that the biggest problem, the biggest impediment, the thing that's going to hold them back more than anything else, is that men in particular, the leaders of the households, were so indebted to the surrounding rich people and the surrounding nations and the surrounding merchants that they were so afraid that if they missed a single payment, they were going to lose their land. They were going to lose their farms. They were going to lose their daughters. They were going to lose their sons. They could lose their wives. And he realized, if I'm going to get their undivided attention to build this wall, I've got to do something about our economy. I'm going to have to change this situation. So what does he do? He dips into his own personal resources and the money that that the king's given him to get the job done. He goes around and he finds out who owes what and he begins to pay the debts of the people personally so that they can get their homes back in their names and the land back in their names, that they can begin to relax a bit and enjoy the fruits of their own labours without feeling like at any point somebody's going to come in and take all of this from them. Can you imagine just living with that threat of at what point am I going to have to sell myself into slavery because you've got a famine going on? This is the picture that their children wouldn't be threatened anymore, that their families wouldn't be threatened. He spent an enormous amount of his personal wealth to buy the people out of slavery. But in exchange, he said, you're going to have to work on the wall. You've got to harvest your crops. But any spare time you have, it's all hands-on debt. We're going to get this wall built. So he created jobs. He paid off debts. And suddenly there's energy, there's activity in the community. And things are beginning to change under Nehemiah's leadership. Things are beginning to get better. People are beginning to feel like their spirits are lifted. And then Nehemiah discovers something that just makes him so mad he can hardly see straight. He's like, I've spent all of this money buying them out of slavery. And just as things are beginning to go well, they're beginning to work on the wall. Everybody's got their own assignment that we saw in chapter 3 where they went through with the names. They said they were, they were um, rebuilding the Sheep Gate and the Dung Gate and whatever other gate. And he discovers that the wealthy Jews in Jerusalem... And the wealthy Jews in the surrounding area see this as a business opportunity for themselves. They see this as the moment to make money off their own people who are starving. Can you imagine how angry Nehemiah was? I love it sometimes, the understatement in the Bible, and Nehemiah was angry. You're like, he was livid. And he's, so what does he do? He confronts them with this whole picture He's like, I've bought these people out of slavery and you've put them straight back into slavery again. And I love what it says in the passage. It says this, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. He has shown them up, hasn't he? He's just been like, look at what you're doing before the community. Good job, Nehemiah. Verse nine, so I continued what you 're doing is not right shouldn 't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the approach of the gentile enemies he 's got them by the scruff of the neck right now. they are shamed, they are feeling guilty, and what but I love even at this point he 's not making it about himself. Nehemiah's is not sitting there being like da, 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 I have saved all the people. I am awesome he 's making this about God in this moment he 's not even making it about these people that have Wrong them. He's saying the the way that we treat one another is really, really, really important. Other nations and people groups are going to look at us and think, do you know what, they don't even care about one another. And when they think like that, that is a reflection of your God. So that they could look in from the outside. And that's why he's saying it's so important that this is a witness. Jesus said that the world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Love one another well. Verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging, the 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Nehemiah understands a really important principle right here. There can be no true reconciliation until they try to make the wrong right. It's one thing to say that you're sorry. I have this experience. I am a father of three daughters and sometimes they might do something naughty, bearish the thought. My children, that's more from Jen's side than my side, but um, just wanted to make that clear. Um, She was a very naughty child. But um, occasionally they do something naughty and uh, I'll confront them and be and I do this moment where I'm like, say sorry. Sorry. Are you really sorry? No. Huh. Okay, well, that was pointless. But you, you have these moments sometimes where you force people to say sorry. And this could be exactly this moment, couldn't it? I shamed these officials, you know, these people that have been lending them. It's like, say sorry. Okay, I'm really, really sorry. But as Jesus says in Matthew 3.8, we have to produce fruit in fitting with repentance, So, repentance is not just this moment of kind of just being like, oh, I'm really sorry, but I'm not really. Repentance is turning the other way. Repentance is this moment where we come before the Lord. And we realize that it's just before him only, that it's an audience of one. I don't know whether you've ever had a moment where the Lord has convicted you of something in your life. I've had a number of times throughout my life where the Lord has just spoken into my heart, into a situation, and it has completely undone me. And in that moment, you do not care about anything anything that's going on around you. You know, sometimes you might be in worship and you're like, oh, should I put my hand up? I wonder what the person behind me thinks that my hand's up. You know, you can overthink things. When you meet the Lord and the Lord speaks into something in your life and the snot begins to come and the tears begin to, you don't care. That's repentance. It's like, I don't care. I'm not in this moment about my reputation. I don't care what other people think. Lord, it's before you and you alone that my heart, and that's what the fruit that repentance looks like. So it's just before the Lord. We're not trying to cover ourselves up in that moment. We come before the Lord just with our hearts open. We're like, Lord, I have wronged you. That's what happens in communion. We shared communion. It talks about examining your hearts before you take this meal because in this moment we remember that Jesus has done it all. That's the repentance. So this fruit of repentance—it's not lip service; it's a heart attitude. And then the people are like, we will do as you say. But Nehemiah is a really smart guy and realizes that people can talk a lot of talk in life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to change at all. So what he does is he's very clever and he says, he does this. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. He's like, I don't trust you guys at all. I am going to make you take an oath. When you think about it in our own context, why do we need contracts today? Because people's word doesn't mean much. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But it's like, I don't trust that you're going to do that. And therefore we write it down in order that it's very, very clear. People, Because a lot of people don't keep their word. And then Nehemiah makes a symbolic gesture. Verse 13, he says this. I also shook out the folds of my robe. You can imagine him doing that. And said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord and the people did as they promised. Can you see what one courageous decision can do to the hearts of many people? See how it ended that the people praised the Lord and did as he said. It's a great example. It could have gone squirrely. It could have gone really wrong in this moment. He was taking on the rich. He was taking on the powerful. And there's there's just one last section that I want to look at. I just want to finish the passage because I think this is really important because it gives you a real insight into Nehemiah's integrity. And I felt, um, just as I was praying before the service, about integrity being something incredibly important for for this group. I felt like the Lord wanted to speak into this. I want you to see the example of how integrous Nehemiah was and let that be an example to us about the kind of integrity that the Lord's looking for. As we go back into our workplaces, as we go back into our, our halls, all of the different places that we go back into, that The Lord's saying, I want you to be a people of integrity. If you want to lead, and many of us are like, I don't really want to lead. But actually, the Lord would ask us to. Then we have to be a people of integrity. And so let's see, how, let's see this in Nehemiah, verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not, for there for the work, we did not acquire any land. There's two things I really want to point out in this. The first one is this. He didn't use his food allowance. He didn't use all of the trappings that could have been offered to him because he was the governor. And he said, I am going to bypass that. Why? Because there are people that are going to have to go without. That might be due me because of my position, but because I know the pain and suffering that that's going to cause, I'm not going to do that. That's the first one. The second one is right at the end. I did not acquire any land. If you think about it, they... They are in the process of rebuilding the walls. What happens when land suddenly becomes safe? It becomes very valuable. This was the moment for any person who was going to invest to invest right now. And Nehemiah could have bought up all of the land at this point, and this would have been a very shrewd thing to do. But he didn't. He didn't do that. Why? And it says it in verse, um, But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Just to continue a little bit further down, verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Why? Because he knows what it is to be a part of a community. That he's sitting there going, do you know what? By rights, I could have all of this, but I'm not going to because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I've just come against these officials saying, you know, I don't want you to charge interest. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to lord it over those people that are poor. And therefore, I can't, you know, I can't sit there and stand with integrity in this moment unless I go without. And he's like, it's not important to me. I'm going to give this up because actually I want to be part of the community and I want to be part of the people. And then it goes on to say this, verse 19, remember me with favor, my God for all I've done for these people. Nehemiah just knows who is worshipping. He knows what he's about. He's about bringing together the people of God. He's about getting rid of injustice and oppression. They so are sitting there going, oh, I could have had all of that, but I didn't. And I don't think that this is a boasting moment where Nehemiah is telling us all how amazing he is. I really don't think it's that. I think he's just saying, my, my love of my God is the most important thing before him and in order to lead these people well I have to go without there's two qualities that you see in great leaders the first one is this great leaders lead by example it's really interesting listening to the um I'm not getting I'm not getting political here although I could if I'm not careful, um, try and keep politics out. Uh, but as, a, you know, as you listen to this whole debate about leaders that's going on and prime ministers at the moment, and sometimes you're like, oh, it doesn't really matter what they do in their private life and it doesn't really matter what they've done in the past. And I'm sitting there thinking, really? Really, does that not matter at all? That actually character has no, you, you know, nowadays we, we just say, oh, you know, it's not about character, it's only about competence. In the kingdom of God, we don't believe that. We believe it's about character first and competence later. It's almost like the Lord will bring the competence, but actually character's the thing. So the first thing that great leaders do is that they lead by example. That's really important. But if you want to go a step further in your leadership, what do you have to do? You have to lead sacrificially. And I think that's exactly what we see here in Nehemiah. We see him leading sacrificially. We see him going without. Saying, you know, I could have all of that but actually I'm not going to because that's not important. This is not why I exist. This is not important to me. And therefore people look at him and they're like, oh, yes that's a man that I can follow. That's somebody that I can be a part of. That is a strong leader. I can get behind that. That actually his words and deeds match up. So you see that. And I have one Last thing to say before I finish, and I wanted to finish with this. Unity is so important for the people of God. This issue that we're reading about in chapter 5 really was a major, major deal. This was huge. The, the devil loves to get us turned against one another. He loves to disrupt a community by infighting. And the truth is, if you are in this community for any length of time, and I hope that many of you will be, and you'll be here for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, for as long as you journey with us, that if you're in this community for any length of time, somebody at some point is going to annoy you. I can guarantee it, because that's part of being part of a community. Somebody's going to say something to you that you take umbrage with, that you get upset about. I, I've been in this community, I've been leading this community for 10 years. I have moments where people say things. I'm like, I cannot believe you've just said that. that oh, we are going to have moments where we fall out. Th- that's all right. We're going to have moments where we have absolute anger at somebody else. They've said something against us. we like, how dare they say that? I can't believe that that's happened or this situation's happened. So I'm, I guess I'm saying that is going to happen to all of us at some point. The important thing is how you deal with it. And there's a great part in Matthew 18, verse 15, where it talks about how we are called to deal with conflict, how we are to treat one another when something goes wrong and when somebody says something. And scripturally, it says in Matthew 18 that the first thing Jesus encourages us to do is if somebody sins against us and we think that something's gone wrong, what happens is we go to that person and we tell them. We're like, oh, do you know what? You said this and it's really upset me. That's the first step. In our culture... That is not the thing that we do. We do everything but that. We tell everybody that we're annoyed. I can't believe this person's done this. Do you know what? I'm going to tell the whole world. I'm going to tweet it. I'm going to Snapchat it. I'm going to. That's about my knowledge of social media. I'm sure there's something else going on right now, but. We're going to do everything but tell the person. I had an incident about, not incident, but I had a situation a number of years ago where somebody came up to me and they said, It's just before they were moving abroad and they said, I've been upset with you for four and a half years. I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me? And it was about something really, really small. I'd missed them off an email list somewhere along the line and they thought that I'd done it on purpose and I hadn't. It was an oversight. And they'd been upset about this situation for four and a half years, but they'd never spoken to me about it. It could have been, I'm really upset with you, and I could have gone, I am so sorry. And I would have had an opportunity to go, I'm really sorry. That's not what I meant at all. But can you see that, that tiny little thing, which is a tiny little thong thing, it's that kind of thing that disrupts the, the people of God. It's the little things. So the first thing that we do is we're, that we go to that person and we're like, do you know what, I'm really upset. Can we just talk about this? If that doesn't work, that's where leadership gets involved. And it talks about where you take a couple of other people and you talk to that person. I guess the reason that I'm saying this is because as a people, we want to do relationships incredibly well. That when people walk in here, that they wouldn't see a people that are in fighting, but a people that are passionate about Jesus and reaching this city for him. Because we, we know what we're about. And actually, that's where we're going. So I just encourage us. I want us... I want us to love one another well. I want us to do conflict when it comes about well, because it will, and it's really, really important. And I want us to look at the example of Nehemiah and say, in whatever situation you find yourself in, that I am going to be a person of integrity, that I'm going to lead by example, and I'm going to lead sacrificially. All of those things, because I think that's what Jesus would ask us to. Why don't we stand?